It's Sunday morning. Time for the great outdoors with Charlie Potter. Brought to you by the all-new Chevy Silverado and ChevyDriveChicago.com on Chicago's very own 720 WGN. We will miss them, Charlie, and um, there's more to come. You know, you and I know a lot of people who are in their early 60s who have been doing this for a long time and have been very effective, and they won't be around forever. So the question is, who picks up the torch and who carries on? And uh, like as not, they won't come from the same backgrounds as the people who preceded them. Well, just for the record, I'm glad you said that I was right. I'd like that to be make, make sure that everyone takes note of the fact that you said I was right. And then also for the record, Carrie, I plan to be around forever, as I hope do you, as we too are not as young as we once were when we entered the, this world of conservation. But you also, you mentioned John Rogner with the Department of Natural Resources uh, and the job he did as a true professional in a department that had just been savaged but for really for, for almost two decades of, of terrible administration uh, in Springfield. And, of course, before John Rogner, uh, you have Brent Manning, uh, Colleen Callahan, who came in as the director under the first term of Governor Pritzker, brought John Rogner you know, to the fore to keep him in, in play. But you, you mentioned that um, we may not be getting people the same background to fill these roles. And I think back... 30 years ago or so, when, when these careers and so many of these people started, they worked their way up through the ranks, if you will, of the not-for-profit sector or the government sector, um, and they became leaders. But they came from backgrounds that might be different than those who are coming today. What, what, what kind yeah. of backgrounds, where's the differential in your view? Well, look, uh, you know, and this is not unique. This, is a, this reflects the larger changes in our society. But, you know, the Brent Mannings of the world, the John Rodners, uh, most of the people who were on the uh, tip of the spear, if you will, in conservation came from an outdoor background. They were, they were hunters and anglers growing up. They fell in love with the outdoors um, in that way and decided to make it their life's work. Um, for the past, oh, I don't know, Charlie, 20 years or so, we've been seeing a change in that the people who are entering the conservation industry um, are less and less uh, with a background in in hunting and fishing. And there's nothing really wrong about that. Um, it's just that it's different. We are seeing people who are starting to work for departments of conservation and natural resources and increasingly even NGOs in conservation who aren't necessarily hunters and anglers. They're scientists, and they have just as much passion for the outdoors as we do. Um, they just come at it from a different uh, perspective. And with that in mind, Charlie, that's why McGraw launched uh, more than 20 years ago now, I believe. I was in the room uh, when the first discussion was taking place. Um, the Conservation Leaders for Tomorrow program, which takes professionals uh, who are studying the natural, who are working in the natural resources field, and exposes them to the North American model of conservation and the role hunting and fishing plays in it, um, because that is still the main way that conservation is funded in this country. And if the people who are going into the conservation world don't at least appreciate it, uh, they're missing out, and so will all of us, because they won't understand that's how conservation is delivered, through the dollars delivered by anglers and hunters in this country more than anything else. So as we have become an ever-urbanized society, 
less than 2% of the population lives on farms. It's, that's a complete reversal from where it was, obviously, 75 years ago. And we've emptied out rural communities and expanded urban communities. Um, it's natural that fewer people can come from an outdoor background who go into management of our, of our natural resources. But what about their interests? Are the interests different? You take a guy like Brent Manning, who, and so many of his peers, think of Lloyd Jones, think of John Cooper, I could go on and on. Uh, John Crampton in South Carolina, all of them grew up with hunting and fishing backgrounds. Today, that's not true. So does that change the future of conservation as backgrounds of people change in these roles? Not only is it changing the future of conservation, it's also changing the people who conservation agencies are trying to reach. Charlie, the big one of the big buzzwords now among fish and wildlife agencies is relevant as the number of hunters continues to dwindle, um, if not uh, both as a percentage of the overall population and in sheer numbers, um, conservation agencies are finding themselves struggling to relate to a larger population that doesn't either never has or never will go out into the woods to chase a duck dinner or a deer dinner or, or hunt in any way. How do they remain relevant? More importantly, Charlie, how do they retain the funding that duck stamps and hunting licenses and and Pittman-Robertson Act funds have flowed to them traditionally through hunters and anglers. We are we are a dwindling lot of uh, being tasked with funding conservation for the whole of society. And natural resource agencies across the country are grappling with this. And how do we relate to a larger, more diverse population and make them support? conservation in general, even if they're never going to go out and get into the mud and into the woods? How do we keep that conservation rolling with a different, if you will, support network? Let's take a break, Carrie. When we come back, I'd like to talk a little bit about your comment about funding, but also just this natural vacuum we now have in, in knowledge mm-hmm. and, and in the near term, how we're going to address it, because it, it's big. It's big in Illinois. It's, it's big everywhere. I'm visiting with Carrie Locke to the Max McGraw Wildlife Foundation. This is Charlie Potter on the Outdoor Voice of Chicago and America, 720 WGN. And first, a message from our longtime sponsors, the Northwest Indiana and Chicagoland Chevrolet dealers. Hiking, camping, and hunting, it's all an adventure in the great outdoors, but nature can be tough. You need to be ready for anything and everything. Chevy Silverado is built to handle the toughest conditions and get you everywhere you want to go worry-free. Silverado's designed to handle the big jobs. It's built for the great outdoors. With over 13,000 pounds of towing capacity and trailering sway control, Silverado can haul the biggest loads on the roughest roads and keep you cool as a Sunday drive. With eight available cameras and up to 14 different views, it can spot trouble before it gets to you. That's peace of mind. And when you're ready for the backcountry, Chevy Silverado 1500 ZR2 owns the off-road. You name it, we run over it. No wonder it's Motor Trend's 2023 four-wheeler pickup truck of the year. So see your Chicagoland and Northwest Indiana Chevy dealer or go to ChevyDriveChicago.com and check out a Chevy Silverado. It's freedom to explore the great outdoors. It's Charlie Potter and the Great Outdoors on Chicago's very own 720 WGN. Welcome back to the Great Outdoors show. Charlie Potter, your host here on WGN Radio. We're visiting with Carrie Loft 
of the Max McGraw Wildlife Foundation. As I said at the top of the show, we often do when there are sort of thorny issues in conservation or big picture issues. Carrie Luft is one of the leaders in conservation thought and communications in the country. And we've been talking about the, the sea change, Carrie, in, in leadership um, at, at agencies and at organizations as a whole generation, the baby boomers, if you will, are retiring out. One of the things I'd like to ask you a little bit about is it used to be that you, if you became director of the Department of Natural Resources, you, you were there for a while. It, it seems yep. that today the average length of term is, I think I'm right, it's less than two years. And if that's the case, how do we expect leadership to, to how do we expect individuals who just find out where their desk is and then they're out the door, they don't have any chances to build relationships with their peer group, the other 49 state directors, et cetera. Is, is, this, a, is this a big problem in the managing of wildlife and fisheries? Well, yes, it is if the vision changes from time uh, from director to director. And, you know, Charlie, we've talked about this before. When you tie natural resource management to politics, uh, you open up a hornet's nest. And we have been, we were very lucky when Governor Pritzker appointed Colleen Callahan. She was somebody who did not by any means come from a natural resources background. Um, she had not even hunted or fished. Uh, she, I believe she had fished, but she had not held a hunting license. She wasn't opposed to hunting, but she was not, um, she did not fit the profile of what we might expect. Colleen Callahan turned out to be a terrific DNR director, and part of that was that she hired a professional in the aforementioned John Rogner to advise her, and, and they were a terrific team for Illinois. And uh, Director Finney, who replaced uh, Colleen Callahan, was uh, kept John on, and I was encouraged by that, but John is taking a well-deserved uh, break. What I worry about, Charlie, is when politics gets into the way of science, both from the top down uh, in the terms of a governor appointing a political crony that has no business running a department, which we've seen across the country in various states, or from the bottom up when voters are relying on, on uh, emotion rather than science uh, push ballot initiatives to manage our research, uh, natural resources in a non-scientifically based manner. Um, politics and science don't necessarily mix. And from where I sit, we need to follow science. So um, you asked, what are we going to do, Charlie? I think we need to hope that the scientists continue to hold sway uh, in natural resource agencies. Where they don't hold sway, I hope we can support their efforts to be heard. And uh, places like McGraw will continue to work to educate scientists on how hunting and fishing are a, are a really big part of conservation in this country and should be supported. Um, I don't need a direct, I don't need a DNR director to hunt, but I need them to understand hunting. Well, that's well that's well said, and I think that the other the other thing that's happened, and for those of you who listen for a while, you know, we touch on it is we end up with a lot of judicial. Uh, interference in wildlife management. So you've got a situation where scientists make recommendations and the courts overturn them. There's all this stuff on Endangered Species Act you could go on for hours about, as you know, wolves reintroduction and all those things. And and then you throw in politics and ballot box and, and you end up with something that looks very different than the North American model uh, that, that served this country so well. So, Carrie, let me ask you, we've got a couple minutes left. What about the funding part of this? It, it's, it's been stated so frequently that, that hunters and fishermen pay the bills 
for conservation. And yet when you look state by state, that may not be true. In some states, it may be really true, but guarantee you, you go to Connecticut or Massachusetts and states like that, and you can't find even, you can't even round it up to a zero practically, the, the support that comes from, from license sales. So what about that concept of where the funding comes from? Well, Charlie, they still get money from uh, Pittman-Robertson Act dollars, which um, mostly it come from uh, today target shooters, but they still get proportions of money from firearm sales, from hunters and ammunition sales, etc. So there's that. But I will just say this, Charlie, regardless of who's paying for it, conservation is facing a funding crisis across the country. Historically, one of the better funded uh, conservation departments in this country has been Missouri's, in no small part because of a citizen-approved uh, tax to support conservation. Uh, Missouri has been a model uh, Department of Natural Resources over the years. And yet, uh, you and I were at a conference earlier this year, the Association of Fish and Wildlife Association meeting, and the Missouri Department says, hey, we've got trouble funding everything that we need to fund, even with the best mechanism out there, that relies on everybody, not just hunters and anglers. So what I would say to you, Charlie, is we do have a crisis, um, even though not every state needs it to the extent that others might. Um, I, would, I would offer to you that the R3 movement that you and I have discussed so many times in the past on this show and offline, um, that is really, in many cases, about funding. Uh, keeping the flow of dollars coming into departments of natural resources, as well as uh, keeping our hunting heritage alive. But I think if we didn't have a funding crisis on the horizon, we wouldn't be talking nearly so much about R3. Well, Kerry, you've now launched into a totally new subject, which we're not going to have time to cover today. And that is what is the purpose of R3. And let's not do that because we're out of time. But I thank you so much for taking the time this morning to be with us. And for all of you listening, thank you for listening to The Great Outdoors Show. This is Charlie Potter, your host here on The Outdoors, Voice of Chicago and America, 720 WGN.